Our sermon text this morning is from 1 John chapter 5, reading verses 1 to 5. 1 John chapter 5, reading verses 1 to 5. And before we read that, we'll pray. So please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for your holy word, the scriptures. And we pray that our hearts would be prepared to receive the scriptures for what they truly are, the very words of God. May we be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that are understanding and obedient. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. First John chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Amen, and may God bless his word to us. Now, I realise I'm before people who read the Scriptures, who read the Scriptures, who, who take them seriously. But I, I'm sort of just asking you this question. If, 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 I was, if, if we were just talking off the cuff and you didn't really have time to formulate your answer and you didn't really have time to try and bring in all of your scriptural knowledge to give you the answer, I ask you the question, when you hear that phrase, overcomes the world, what do you instantly think of? What's the very first thought that comes into your mind? Is it spiritual in some way? A revival? You know, like the first great awakening, one of those amazing happenings whereby the power of God's Holy Spirit, preachers were enabled to preach the word in such a way that thousands were drawn into the kingdom. People were literally barging in, as it were. Would that be overcoming the world? Or would you imagine that overcoming the world would be a long, steady process of evangelization and gospel preaching and church growth where, whereby it got to the point that Christians were of a sufficient number to actually turn an election, to, to make willing and somewhat righteous representatives go to parliament and start voting or voting for or putting up legislation that was in some way better than the nonsense and the evil dribble that they're trying to force onto us from the top down at this moment. Would you think that was overcoming the world? What I want to suggest to you in this sermon today is that although those things would indeed be a way of thinking of overcoming the world, and I'm not saying that it is not representative of overcoming the world, that in 1 John and in the book of Revelation, when overcoming the world is spoken of, it's speaking of something completely different. What's it speaking of? Well, I'll suggest to you, I'll, I will try to bring it to you from the scripture, that overcoming the world is living not according to the ways of the world, but according to the word of God. It starts 
at a personal level for each individual Christian. We may be part of a movement that God causes to happen. Those other things might happen in the sovereign providence of God. He might bless a church or churches with revival. He might grow his church to the point where Christians, not really through any particular organisation of man, but simply because the churches are strong, the Christians are strong in their faith, and the the church has grown to such an extent that Christians might exert political influence that would bring some measure of righteousness to a nation. God might do those things, and that is in a way overcoming the world. But primarily what John is speaking of is people who belong to Christ not living according to the world around them, but living according to the word of God. And if necessary, dying according to the word of God. Living consistently and dying consistently. John Wesley, one of the founders of the Methodist denomination back in the day, and if if you don't really know a whole lot of church history, you would say to me, well, I look around at the Methodists today and most of them have gone into the Uniting Church and it's fairly weak as water and uh, doesn't impress me very much. That's okay. That's, that is what you would see today. You go back into the history of Methodism and into, um, you know, the 1730s, 40s and 50s. The Methodist Church was born out of a powerful, mighty revival. And it was the evangel- evangelical powerhouse of its day. And so uh, John Wesley was one of the founders of Methodism. And one of the things that he said, and it's been recorded, someone asked him, how do you know what you're doing is right? And he said, our people die well. Do you understand what he's saying? Our people die in the certainty of faith. Our people die without the fear of death. Our people die knowing that they are the people of God and going on to be with Jesus. Our people die well. And that is perfectly consistent with the Apostle John when he speaks of a believer's warfare with the world and when he speaks of a believer overcoming the world. If you've got your Bibles open in 1 John, just skip back to one little passage in 1 John chapter 2, looking at verses 15 to 17. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the lover of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So to understand that passage carefully, we need to understand exactly what John's talking about when he says, do not love the world. He's not talking about rivers, birds and trees. You know, yesterday, our family, what we've got here in this district, we all met down by the river. We had a picnic lunch. We, you know, played with the grandchild. The dogs played. We had a really nice day. John's not saying that was wrong, right? We're very thankful for the time we spent. He's not saying that was wrong. That's not what he's talking about when he says, do not love the world. In 1 John, I want you to say in 1 John chapter 5, 
And look at verse 19, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. And we'll get some idea of what John is saying, I think. We know that we are from God. We, he's writing to a church. He's writing to people like you and I. We know that we are from God. We are born of God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay, let's pass this out. Let's understand what he's saying. First of all, who owns the world? God. Who rules the world at the right hand of the Father and all authority has been given unto him? The Lord Jesus Christ. So is John saying something that is in opposition to what we already know from other places in Scripture? No, he's not. But what he's calling the world there is actually those people who are outside of Christ. It is those people, it is their social conventions, it is their political constructions, their governments, etc., etc., etc. That's what John is calling the world. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So the funny thing is we've been told that we're going to overcome the world. You know, does it, does it feel like we're, I'm asking you this in sort of a shallow way, just off the cuff again. Does it feel like we're on the losing side? You know, you look at what's happening in the world around you. You know, some parents in New Zealand, they dared ask that in an operation their baby not be given the blood of a person who'd been injected with um, the COVID injections. The baby was taken off them. Does it feel like we're losing? Now, I know nothing about them. Are they Christians or not? I don't know. They may well be. Probably they are. What is a woman? You know, there's a whole documentary you can find on the internet. What is a woman? Ask the world. Doesn't have a definition. If someone or something says it's a woman, it's supposedly a woman. Scripture says that a woman is a female human being made in the image of God. Male and female, he made them. In his own image, he made them. The world says, no. You're binary and you're bigoted if you want to hold to that definition. What is marriage? Scripture says that God made them, male and female, and therefore they ought not be taken apart. What God has put together, let no man tear asunder. What is marriage? It's a man and a woman entering into a God-glorifying covenant of raising a family that serves God and glorifies God. Man and woman, that's marriage. What does the world say is marriage? All right, we, we don't have to go too far through the legislation that's been enacted in recent times to come up with the idea that we're on the losing side. And I want to tell you, we're not. We're on the winning side. Okay, the world is already condemned. God has already condemned the world. God has already passed his judgment. We are not of the world. We who are in Christ are born of God. Everything's changed. The citizenship has changed. We're counted as having been born in Zion, the city of our God. 
You see, here's the truth of the matter. People, puny little people. It doesn't matter if you're talking about one, a dozen, a hundred, a thousand, a million, a billion, however many billions there are. People can't change things just by saying it's changed. So the morons can say that there's no such thing as a woman and if a man claims to be a woman, he must be considered to be a woman. The fools can say that there's no such thing as a marriage, that if anybody wants to say they're married, one, two, three people, whatever, it's a marriage. The fools can say what they want. Their words have no power. Okay? You know, the little old phrase that you sometimes hear about moving deck chairs on the Titanic. The whole thing's going down and someone wanted to get their chair in the best place to see it happen. That's what the world can do with its words. It can shift the deck chairs to somewhere where it might get a slightly different view of the whole thing going down. When God speaks, that's the truth. What God says, that's the way it is. It's actually God who has power. It's actually God's words that have power. Every word that comes from the mouth of God will complete the purpose for which he sent it forth. Roughly, I'm quoting Isaiah chapter 55, if you don't know. It will fulfill the purpose for which he sent it forth before it returns unto him. The way that God says things are is the way that they are. And God does not say we're losers. And he does not say that we're a defeated people. And he does not say that we should be fearful. And he does not say that we should be sad and troubled by the world going crazy around about us. He says that we live according to his word. And in this way, we overcome the world. And my friends, what that actually means is, when we get serious about the scripture here in a moment, what that actually means is, Even if the world killed us, we have still overcome the world. And if the church generally, the Christians generally, really want to actually have some power and take part in overcoming the world, they've got to make this their attitude, their approach. We have to make this something that is foundational to our way of thinking. If we live this way, we are victorious over the world and we can rejoice in God's grace and goodness toward us. So let's read the passage before us once again. 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes. Everyone who has exercised faith in Christ. That person is born of God. You know, in the world, unfortunately, many believe the idea of saying born again, what it means is that you must have marched forward at some kind of rally or something that's called a crusade or whatever. And at that moment, you repeated the prayer of a pastor or you read through a prayer that was handed to you on a tract or whatever. And that's the moment you were born again. This is not actually saying that. What this is saying is that everyone who believes, everyone who has that faith, they have been born of God. It's not talking about the event when the change happened. It's talking about the fruit, which is 
caused by the change which may have happened at any time in a person's life. There are children who are saved at a very young age and they can't remember the day that they suddenly were born again. But they believed what they were taught in the scripture and they were convicted of their sins and they repented of their sins even at that time. And they couldn't tell you when. You know, if you start if you start to do something, if something becomes your habitual way of thinking at three or four years old, well, how many of you can remember many particular days from your life at three or four years of age? You know, I can probably remember four of them. It's not the event, it's the life. Everybody who lives this life of faith has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Consider, my friends, I ask you the question, do you love God? Do you love God? And I'm not asking you, do you have fuzzy, warm emotions when I ask you the question? All right, I'm not asking you, do you have, to borrow a phrase from a cult, when I ask you, do you love God? I'm not asking you, do you have a burning in the bosom? Okay, that's not what I'm saying. Do you love God? How would we define loving God? Well, we can. Let's look at a couple of places in the Old Testament that speak very clearly of loving God. The first place I want you to turn to is Exodus chapter 20. Now we're going to read the commandment concerning idolatry. So we're going to read Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay. From this commandment, we can come up with at least one definition in context of hating or loving God. What would hating God be in the immediate context of the commandment? Hating God would be making for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything and calling it God. In the context of the commandment, that is the hating of God. And what is the loving of God? It's the obedience to his commandments and it's the obedience to the commandment that you do not try to make of God something less than he is. You do not commit idolatry or blasphemy. God is God and God alone is God. And you worship God as he has revealed himself to be in obedience to his commandments. So right here in Exodus 20, chapter 4, what we find is that loving God involves obeying God. It's not a warm, fuzzy, emotional feeling. It's a conviction. It's a conviction of what is right. It's a conviction of what ought to be done. It's something that controls your mindset. It's something that at times tells you you're in the wrong. I have failed to do what God commanded. I have failed to do what is right. And at times it tells you that you are doing right. I'm helping, for example, my fellow man. I'm helping my brother, my sister. I'm helping someone who's not even a Christian. I'm doing what is right. I am loving my neighbour. Loving God 
is not seen in any way apart from personal obedience. We can then expand that out to any other commandment that applies to the Christian life. Don't talk about loving God unless this thing that you're calling the love of God convicts you and puts you on a particular path and makes you want to obey God. Let's have another look at another Old Testament place concerning the love of God. We're going to go now to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 6. We're going to read what's called the Shema. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Shema just simply means hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6 4. Here's the command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Okay, let's ask the question. How would that be done? What would be the evidence of loving the Lord our God? Here's what he says. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay. What's the evidence of someone who is loving the Lord their God? Now, no one has ever truly loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength, except for our saviour, the Lord Jesus himself. He's our saviour. He's the one who is without sin and perfectly righteous. But what's the evidence that the person loves the Lord their God? Everything about his life is centred around and driven by the word of God. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You know, it doesn't mean he's ripped out a page of scripture and he's thumbtacked it across his chest, does it? It means he's he's taking in the word of God with such diligence that he can call it to mind at any time and that that word of God guides him in his every decision and action. He's taken the word of God into his very heart and because it's in his heart, it's actually one of the things that he can't stop talking about. He talks to his own children about it. You shall teach them diligently to your children. <coughs> Pardon me. You'll talk of them when you're sitting in your house. You'll talk of them when you're walking, when you lie down and when you rise. Okay. This literally means something, but you would be wrong if you thought that he's saying if you forget to say you know, if you forget to recite scripture when you lay down to go to sleep and if you forget to write, recite scripture when you get up in the morning, you're doing something wrong. It's a start to a finish type thing. It's an A to Z type thing, we'd say. He's saying in every aspect of your life, this word of God hidden in your heart will be guiding you and it will be in your conversation. You'll be sharing it with others. You'll be sharing it with both those who believe and those who do not believe. It will be constantly springing forth from you. If you love the Lord your God, you love the words of the Lord your God. You love the words that he has to say. You love the commandments that he gives you. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. What do you do with your hand? Your work. They're controlling the way you work. They shall be as frontlets before your, between your eyes. You know, once again, you know, a little box here. That's not what he's saying. 
Everything you see, everything you see should be interpreted through and according to the word of God. And this is evidence of your love for God. This is what loving the Lord your God will do. This is how you would know that someone loves God. So let's turn our Bibles back to 1 John 5. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time using other scriptures to explain to you now exactly what John is about to tell you in one sentence. Let's read it. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. When we love God and do as God has told us to do. We obey his commandments. My friends, how do you love your neighbour as yourself? Well, I'll make this point. There's more to it than simply saying I keep the law, but it starts at lawful relationships. You don't murder or hate your neighbour. You don't steal from your neighbour. You don't have jealousy of your neighbour and the things that your neighbour has. You don't give false testimony to or about your neighbour. And when it comes to the worship of God, you point your neighbour towards the true worship of the living God. That's how you love your neighbour. It starts off lawful. Just barely keeping the commandments, by the way, is not enough. Okay, that commandment, you shall not murder, it can be taken in the positive as a commandment, you shall bless the life of others. You shall encourage their life. You shall strengthen their living. You shall give life where you can. Share your food. That's a really simple one. But that's part of it. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. I have heard people say things which, you know, in all honesty, reveal a problem in their heart. I've honestly heard people say it. For example, the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and a person say, you know, don't you get bored with just one partner? Shouldn't we be able to mix it up a bit? All right, that's, that's revealing the state of their heart. And if, you, if you're thinking, uh, surely that wasn't in a church, no, it was in a church. Many a year ago. You see, not only do we love God, we love his commandments. I'm not claiming that anybody here can perfectly keep God's law. Because if you could perfectly keep God's law, you don't need a saviour. Honestly, you don't need Jesus. And if you could perfectly keep God's law, you don't need further instruction. You don't need further instruction from a preacher like me or from any other preacher. If you're perfectly keeping God's law, you've got nothing to worry about. Off you go. Seriously. But what I'm saying is our desires should be that we are holy and righteous in the sight of God. And this should not be burdensome to us. We should not want anything to come our way through, for example, dishonesty. Nothing wrong with working, nothing wrong with running a business, nothing wrong with making a profit. But there's a difference between working and making a profit and being outright dishonest. There's a difference. 
We should not desire things that are not coming to us lawfully. It is right for a husband to desire his own wife. It is wrong for a husband to desire anyone else's. It's as simple as that. The same applies to a woman. It is right for her desire to desire her own husband. It is wrong for her to desire anyone else's or any other man who may not yet be a husband, etc., etc. We are to love the holiness and the righteousness and the good conscience that comes from doing right according to the word of God. We don't find his commandments, commandments burdensome. We find them to be right, to be good, to be refreshing. And then John speaks of, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So there we have that word, overcomes, overcomes, overcomes. Let's talk about that one particular word. In the New Testament, it's used 28 times. Three of those uses are outside the writings of the Apostle John. It's used once in the Gospel of Luke, where it's on the words of our Lord, on the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, where he speaks of having overcome or conquered the strong man. And that's why he could plunder the strong man's house. And it appears twice in the book of Romans, where the Apostle Paul uses it to speak of either being overcome by sin or being overcome by righteousness. So basically, it's sort of the Apostle John's word. I don't mean that he owns it. This is God's word. But it's a word that appears often in the writings of the Apostle John, 25 times. And remember, the book of Revelation is written by the Apostle John. And think of the promises contained in the letters to the churches. What does it say? To the one who overcomes, I shall give. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. You say, well, okay, are they the words of John or the words of Jesus? And the answer is yes. They are the words of Jesus coming to us through the Apostle John. It's the word of God, breathed out by God. But if you're talking about how do we get the word of God, well, God's people wrote God's word. They were, if you want to use the word, they were overseen by God's Holy Spirit so that they wrote exactly according to the will of God. But they used the words that they knew. They used the language that they knew. John used the word overcome. Maybe it's been translated conquers in some of your translations. That's also a legitimate translation. Overcome or conquer. So what I wanted to do now was turn us to that short passage that we read earlier in the book of Revelation at chapter 12. Because there it speaks of the, the children of the Lamb, the saints of God overcoming. And I wanted to see if that brought any more light or understanding to the concept of overcoming. And I think it does. So please turn to Revelation 12. So dropping in at verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. 
I won't turn us to John chapter 12, but it's in John chapter 12 before Jesus goes to the cross that he speaks of casting down the prince of this world. Now the time has come, he says. Now has come the time where the prince of this world will be cast down. And there's echoes of that in this. I don't want you to even think about timelines. Okay, let's not argue eschatology. My only comment would be if you want to read a passage like this in such a way that it means nothing to the people of God at all times, you're reading it wrong. The book of Revelation was given to the church. It was given to the church 2,000 years ago, and it's meant to be an encouragement and instruction to all of the saints since then. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, verse 11, all right, they, who's they? We've got to work out who's, who is the they. Well, the, the, um, the identifier, you know, the, the, the antecedent identifier, collective noun before they, is brothers. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God and they. So, okay, this is speaking of the brothers. Who are? Well, we're the brothers. The Christians. These are the Christians. And they have conquered, overcome. ESV says conquered. It's the same word. They have overcome. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. So let's stop. Let's ask some questions and make sure we understand what's being said. What would it mean when it says they have overcome or conquered by the blood of the Lamb? Now, I'll, I'll just make a little comment here. Let's go off down a little sidetrack for a minute or two. I have um, been a Christian now for something like 33 years, number of churches. And what I've noticed is that there are these sort of trends that sweep through many churches. <clears throat> And what the trends often are is people searching for what I would call the silver bullet remedy to their troubles. And years ago in the 90s, there was a trend, a silver bullet supposed remedy to troubles. Everyone would pray the power of the blood. We claim the power of the blood over this here situation. I'm not making fun of them, but I'm thinking they're getting it wrong. Okay, that was one of those trends. Another one was we bind Satan. You know, these phrases, they seem to fly through the churches from time to time and everybody's doing it and then everybody gets sick of it because they realise in the long term it made no real difference. Okay, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. How would that be? The blood has washed away the record of their sin. The blood of the lamb is the cleansing blood. The blood of the lamb is the redeeming blood. My friends, when we sought forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we were cleansed, redeemed. We were, we were taken, as it were, away from the ownership of the ruler of this world that we read about in 1 John 5. And we were placed under the ownership of God himself in a direct relationship with God. Satan had no claim upon us. These people 
who are conquering or overcoming are conquering and overcoming because though Satan might come our way, in Christ we can say, as Christ himself said, but he has nothing in me. Remember, even now the prince of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. If we are in Christ, he has nothing in me. All right, I'm not a part of the world. I'm born from above. I'm not under the rule of the prince of this world. I'm under the rule of the king of this world and the king is the Lord Jesus Christ. Why can I claim to be one who has been given the power to overcome? How is it that you can claim to be one who has been given the power to overcome? It is because you are in Christ and Satan has no power over you. He cannot bring you down. If you want to think of one of his roles, think of the book of Job and think of what Satan did before God concerning Job. Job, the most righteous man on earth. God loved Job. Have you seen my servant Job? He shuns evil. He pursues the good. He does what is right in my side. And Satan said, the only reason he's acting good is because you've blessed him. Take away the blessing and he'll be evil. He accuses. It's not true faith. It's not real faith. He doesn't really believe you. He doesn't really love you. He just thinks that it's the best way to get a blessing and all he wants is the blessing. Take away the blessings. You'll what? You'll see. He'll curse you to your face. The accuser of God's people. My friends, accusations don't stick if you haven't done what you're accused of. They might hurt. They can hurt. There's nothing more likely to get an angry response than a false accusation. That's for sure. But the truth is in the long run, in the long run, they don't stick. Why was Jesus raised from the dead? Because he was guilty of no sin. Therefore, the penalty of death did not actually apply to him. He died in our place. He did not die because of his own sin. He was raised for our justification. Everything that he said and ever taught and ever promised and ever spoke of concerning himself, everything was vindicated in that he was raised from the dead. Sin had no grip on him. Well, my friends, when we are in Christ, when we are loving God, when we are striving to keep God's commandments, even if it's not perfectly. Okay, I'm, I'm not trying to preach to you any kind of personal perfectionism. We do not keep God's commandments perfectly. You know, I wish I could stand before you and say that my motivation to preach the word of God to you is absolutely pure. I'm just doing it because I truly, really love God and I truly, really love God's word. Okay, I wish I could say it. It's a dangerous thing to be here. It's a dangerous thing to have people trust you. It's a dangerous thing to have people sit here and listen to you teach. I wish I could claim I had no ego. I'm telling you the opposite. I'm a sinner. Okay, I'm in a dangerous place. I love you all. I hope you all love me, but I'm in a dangerous place. I'm a sinner. And, uh, you know, we've always been warned about the three G's that bring down preachers. I don't know if you've heard of it. There's three G's that bring down preachers. Girls, gold, glory. Okay? Girls, gold, glory. It's a fact. Pray for me. Pray for anyone who's preaching. 
Pray for anyone whom you think is a faithful teacher of the word of God. Pray that they will not be turned aside and that they will not fall into sin. But what I'm saying to you is that we who love the Lord Jesus, we who love his word, we who are striving to do what is right in his sight, Satan has nothing in us. Okay, the accusations, in the end, they count for nothing. If you are washed in the blood, you're washed in the blood. And his words are like water off a duck's back when it comes to the believer. They're nothing in particular. Those who overcome, overcome because the blood of the lamb has redeemed them and washed them clean. Notice they also overcome by the word of their testimony. These are the people who go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. They talk about these things when they sit down, when they rise up, when they lie down, when they get up, when they walk along the way. They can't stop talking about these things. God's people are the people who can't shut their mouth about the truth. They testify. Now, I'll tell you something. If you don't know it, and you probably know it, but you haven't really thought about it in this way. Testimony is only what you know from personal experience. Testimony is not that I heard someone say to someone that something happened. Okay, all I can say there is I can testify that person A spoke to person B. That's it. I can't testify as to the truth of what they said because whatever they were talking about is not my personal experience. Testimony is your personal experience. Now, I'm not saying that means that you share with everybody your conversion story. I'm saying that your whole Christian life is your testimony. Okay? I'll give you some. I'm not talking to you about my conversion. I come from a troubled family. Alcohol ruled the roost. Stupidity ruled the roost. God got involved. God made me his own. Within a year, God made my younger brothers his own. My brothers and I. I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm not saying our marriages are perfect. I'm not saying our children are perfect. But our families, our lives are nothing like the rest of our family. God has made a difference in our lives. We're different. We're not ruled over by the things that ruled over our parents. And we're not miserable, bickering, fighting, you know, nobodies that, that can't get along with each other from one day to the next. God has made a difference in our lives and we give God the glory because we know that we had no power of our own. And God has given us faithful children and we praise God and we thank God for it. Okay, in my life is a life that is filled with joy and happiness. Doesn't mean I'm smiling all the time. Doesn't mean nothing ever goes wrong. Doesn't mean I don't sin. That's not what I'm saying. Would I live this life again? As long as it means I end up knowing the Lord Jesus all over again. Yes, I will. Honestly, yes, I will. Not that I want to go through the past ever again. God has made a difference. Our family is close. Our family is loving. God has made a difference. And every time I've put God to the test, it's turned out that God is true and every man is a liar. 
And I've never found scripture to fail me, ever. And I've never found the promises of God to fall to the ground, ever. And even my mum was converted late in life, but she was converted. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. My friends, it's not talking about your conversion experience, although you may have an interesting story of your conversion. God bless you if you do. It's talking about your Christian experience from start to finish. It's talking about the life you live. It's talking about the things that you can tell people, about the way God restrained you from one thing or another, about how God put you in one certain path or another, how God brought you and your wife together, about how God has done things in your life. These people who love God are conquering or overcoming Satan, the prince of this world, one, because they're washed in the blood of the lamb and two, because they can't stop talking about it. Okay, the words getting out there somehow or other, we can't keep our mouths shut. And as long as we don't keep our mouths shut, we're conquering, we're overcoming. Election results, honestly, in the end, they have nothing to do with what the Apostle John is speaking of here. We're conquering because the world can't shut us up and the truth is being spoken into dark places Light is being pushed into the darkness and the darkness is being pushed back by the light. That's how we're conquering. And then he says, for they loved not their lives even unto death. You see, John was writing to a persecuted church. John was writing to a church which could actually pay for its faith with its own blood. They loved not their lives even unto death. They would not say that Caesar is Lord. They would only say that Christ is Lord. They would not listen to the commandments of the world. They would only obey the commandments of God. If that meant we come to our death, they die. And in dying, they overcome or conquer the world. They weren't trying to hold on to the things of this world. They weren't trying to hold on to the glory of this world. They weren't trying to hold on to the things that God gave them. God gives us things. He gives us things. He gives us possession. He gives us land, families, whatever. These good things, they all come from God. Our children, etc., etc. they all come from God. And in the end, if God puts it before us that we are to testify even unto death, that we are to obey his commandments even unto death, well, then you obey his commandments even unto death and in so doing you conquer, you overcome the world. You defeat the world. It's a victory, my friends. We're not measuring on the word, on the, on the scale of the world. We're measuring according to the word of God. Dying in faith is overcoming the world. Dying for faith is victory over the world. You read of martyrs who got burnt to death, who got beheaded, who got dragged through the streets, etc., etc. They overcame the world. They were conquerors. They were victorious soldiers. My friends, look at the nation we live in. Look at the direction in which it's going. I hope it doesn't come to blood. But at the moment, 
things are getting ever more unfriendly for people like you and I. You know, this, this testifying to the world, they hate it. They hate it. They hate everything we say. Whenever we speak according to the word of God, they hate it. They hate us telling them that the scripture says you're wrong. The scripture says that God made them male and female. The scripture says that what God puts together, no one ought to tear apart. The scripture says that we're to talk to our children concerning the things of the Lord every single day, all day and every day. The scripture doesn't say that we're supposed to say to our children, well, you listen to the world six days a week and on Sunday you get half an hour of Sunday school and you'll be right. If you want to see something that really um, upsets the world, get your kids out of the system and watch as people start to call you a fanatic and an idiot and a fool. Take them away from the teaching of the world. Okay, and, you know, I know, school teacher here, solid brother. But, but you know and I know that place where you're working, it's a den of iniquity and it's a gateway to hell. Get your kids out of the system. Seriously. And the world will hate you for it. They'll call you an idiot. Because you're not doing it their way. And you're not letting their wisdom get poured into your kid's head. You're filling your kid with the word of God. And that's going to get harder to do. Unless God does something amazing. And he might. Okay, Pharaoh was brought down at the height of his powers. God might. But it's not for me to try and prophetically claim that I know he will. Okay, some are called to suffer. In this world in which we live, we might be called to suffer. This nation, as I've said to you, is getting more hostile to what we believe. My friends, I'm saying to you, don't ever back down. And don't ever be afraid to let go of this world and to entrust whatever it is you're losing into God's hands and die if that is what it's if that is what is called for that's a hard thing to say you say i've got children maybe i maybe i've got to be alive for every day of their life look in the end if the choice is deny christ or trust your child into the hand of god i hope you trust your child into the hand of god and choose death and that's hard i know that's hard speech that's that's hard talk that's tough talk I know it's unpleasant talk, but my friends, do you want to overcome the world and do you want to be part of a church that overcomes the world and do you want to be part of Christian victory, not Christian defeat? And if your answer to the questions is yes, well, I'm putting it before you right now, that is what is called for. Be stupid enough to charge the walls. Sometimes playing it safe is eternally dangerous. And it's sometimes you have to judge on what is safe and what is dangerous, not in a this-worldly sense, but you have to judge these things in the light of eternity. Some struggles, my friends, you just cannot turn away from without compromising in such a way that you're putting your salvation at risk. My friends, by these means, we overcome the world. Let's turn back now to 1 John chapter 5. Have a look at those few verses. And bring this to a close. 
Verse 4. Now I'll give you some, some encouragement, I hope. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Take that as a promise. Take that as a promise. What is it saying? If you are born of God, you will overcome the world. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Okay, in the day when you have to stand, you will be made to stand. How do people go to their death singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, quoting scripture and saying goodbye to world and friendship and comfort? How do they do it? In the day of their testing, they were made to stand. In the day of your testing, should it come, you will be made to stand. God will not leave you without strength. God's Holy Spirit will not abandon you. And the spirit that is in us is more powerful than the spirit that is in this world. By far. The weakest Christian is more powerful than the prince of this world. Though we don't often see it that way. And the weakest Christian is wiser than the prince of this world. And the weakest Christian is more glorious than the prince of this world, though he can disguise himself as an angel of light. If the testing comes, you will be made to stand and you will overcome the world. Look at what it says. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. I love reading history. I love reading war histories. I love reading eyewitness accounts of battle. I don't really enjoy, you know, a guy writes a history from 200 years later and he puts on it whatever slant he was. I love reading it if I can read someone's journal or diary. One of the things that strikes me about history, and and it's a question I've often asked, how is it that you can get thousands of men, and I'm thinking now in regimental terms, so a couple of thousand of men, and they're willing to run against a line of enemies, an enemy line, knowing that a great percentage of themselves will be killed. Yet, by no means would they dare to turn back. How is it that you get that kind of person? What gives them the courage? Well, usually in their military training, they're, first of all, made French They're forced to form friendships under suffering. That's what boot camp's all about. Fellowship under suffering. And then they're forced to take some kind of pride in what is considered to be their identifier. I will not let my regiment down. My regiment has a record. We're the regiment that crosses the enemy trenches. There's a sense of history. There's a sense of identity. There's a sense of belonging. Under no circumstances will I let my friends down, even if it means I will die. In a worldly sense, in a military sense, it's that kind of attitude that that gets soldiers charging into danger. Well, my my Christian friends, we're in the army of God and 
we're told to form fellowship in suffering. Okay, I can't imagine those people who call themselves Christians but do not fellowship with the saints and strengthen the church and build up the church, I can't imagine them facing death. I really can't, I'll be honest. If they're not willing to go through the discomfort of getting out of bed on a Sunday morning and attending a church and doing whatever little thing they can do to help build the church, well, I don't know that they're going to have the courage to face up to death. Remember, they love not their lives even unto death. But my friends, Christians fellowship, we encourage one another, even in suffering. And my friends, we have an identity, as it were. We belong to a body, to an army that is more glorious than any historical army that's walked across this earth. We belong to the body of Christ. We're members of the bride of Christ. We're members of the household of God. I don't often preach and tell you someone did it, therefore you ought to do it. You know I kind of avoid it. But it's actually in the scripture. Jesus obeyed even unto death. Our older brother, our closest friend, our saviour, our Lord, the one who bought us with his blood, He obeyed even unto death, saying, not my will, but yours be done. My friends, there is our example. We're not going to purchase people from their sins. Our blood is not in that way as precious as the blood of the Lord Jesus. We're not going to save a church. Our blood is not as powerful as the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the imitation of Christ, we must be prepared to suffer for the name of Christ and we must be prepared to carry the banner forward in battle. Loving not our lives, even unto death. And in this way, should we die? We overcome the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. My friends, if your last breath is taken in faith, your next breath will be taken in heaven and you have overcome the world. Who is it? John asks, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Nobody else. No other group. No other charitable organisation, no school, no public school, no Christian school, etc., etc. None of these things overcome the world. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The victory is ours in Christ. Irregardless of what happens in the world around about us and irregardless of what God might permit the world to do to us. The victory is ours in Christ. And when we understand that and when we believe that and when these things dominate our thoughts, well, we'll have something in common with those who have gone before us. Yeah, now we understand how they got burnt to death. Now we understand how they were beheaded. Now we understand these things. Now we understand how a man could walk out of his house and leave his family behind and die for his faith, trusting them into the hands of God. Why? Because they love not their lives even unto death. I want the church to be victorious. I want to see revival. I want to see Australia changed. But my friends, 
We, you, me, all of us, we must be these people who overcome through faith in the Son of God. If the church doesn't have those kind of people, how can we expect it to overcome the world in any other sense? I'd love to see the revival. I'd love to see this nation changed. But if the church doesn't have these people, how can we expect to see any other kind of overcoming, any large-scale Christian victory, as it were, any large-scale Christian claiming of the territory? Let's be honest. You admit it, I admit it, let's all admit it together. We're inclined to softness. We're inclined to softness. We're inclined to take the easy options. We're inclined to avoid conflict. The Christians of John's day didn't have that option. They just didn't have it. They were hated. They would not say that Caesar is Lord, therefore they were enemies of the state. My friends, maybe the day is going to come. Our state takes more and more power unto itself. People are more and more willing to look at government as God. People are more and more willing to put their trust in government, less and less willing to give glory to God. The day might come. That that decision day, that Caesar is Lord day, it might come. However it's framed, however it's put before us. My friends, we who are in Christ, we will overcome the world. They're the losers. We're the victors. Remember, that's what the scripture tells us. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we will be your faithful and obedient children. That we indeed will not fear death, but fear rather that we would grieve God through disobedience. Help us, Father, to have our hearts filled with the Holy Spirit with boldness and joy and rejoicing. No matter what happens in the world around about us, help us, our Father, to be victorious, to overcome through faith in Christ. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.